Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. So really looking ahead at 2024 and even more so 25 and 26, we're finally going to see the full impact of the federal support that's now on the table. And so the years ahead are going to be even more exciting, I think, than we've seen uh, the growth rates over the past 12 months. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Today is going to be a slightly different episode because it's a replay of an exclusive recording that we were able to capture while we were down in San Diego a couple weeks ago at Enter Solar. And this keynote I'm particularly excited by for lots of reasons, not the least of which, when the keynote was over, Jeremy on our team runs our operations. He came up to me and he said, this guy is the real deal. (laughs) And that real deal guy is an academic who has been in the room where it happened so many times in the last few years that he really is central to our current climate policy in the United States. I would argue he has been instrumental, not just I, but Ezra Klein and others have said he's been instrumental as an energy expert to the way that the current Inflation Reduction Act and other climate policies surrounding it came to be. So if you don't know Jesse Jenkins, He's an assistant professor at Princeton. He graduated with his PhD from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he was involved in a number of landmark studies, not the least of which is the Net Zero Project, I think it was called. I'll link to his LinkedIn and to a fantastic episode that he did with Ezra Klein way back in 2022, in which Ezra, who is one of uh, the climate OG reporter said the, it is the best single best guide to decarbonization that he had ever heard. He considers, and so do I, that Jesse Jenkins, the guy you're about to see, is the foremost expert on how we could decarbonize our grid. He runs the Princeton Zero Lab, which is the Zero Carbon Energy Systems Research and Optimization Lab. And he is, he's a, he's a geek's geek, to be honest. And he is, so personable in the way that he communicates. I think this is what separates Jesse Jenkins from the crowd. And that is, he's very capable of handling a conversation that gets deeply technical, but he's also charismatic and personal and able to present. And having watched the keynote that you're about to see, I was impressed by the way he carries himself, the way he was able to carry the crowd through the conversation. And everyone felt energized. And more than that, everyone felt like it was a call to arms. So I call you to stick around and enjoy this conversation with Jesse Jenkins, associate professor at Princeton University, who is going to talk about exactly what you need to understand about the decarbonization race that we are all implicitly a part of. If you love these kinds of conversations with thinkers 
and thought leaders on the front lines of the clean energy transition, well, you are in the right place. We've got more than 650 episodes here in the Suncast back catalog. You can check them all out at mysuncast.com. But for now, let's get ready to tune up and tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. What an exciting time to be in the solar and storage business. And there's just been explosive growth in these markets. And a lot is counting on you. So no pressure, but let's keep that up. Um, as I'm going to talk about here, we need a lot more out of solar and storage to get on the path to decarbonize the United States economy and to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions. So let's talk about what kind of grid we need to build to decarbonize the United States. I want to start here, which is the game-changing nature of the legislation passed by the 117th Congress. That was the last uh, Congress that ended in, in 2022. The passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law bring the full financial might of the federal government behind the clean energy transition. So you now have one of the most powerful forces in the world, right? The purse strings of the federal government backing the clean energy transition in a way that we truly have never had before, right? Gone are the days of off-again, on-again tax credits that are extended at the last minute, wrecking havoc on plans, making it difficult to build out a domestic manufacturing industry. Expanded, um, we have expanded credits now for a range of things, including uh, new tax credits for uh, energy storage, for hydrogen, and for other fuels, right? We now have a nationwide set of support to build out the industries that you all are working on. And that truly changes the fight against climate change, I think, in really immeasurable ways. What the infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act effectively do is put clean energy on sale for everybody, right? For all Americans. Now, just like when you go to shop at a sale, we get to see the costs of solar are going to be 30% off, right, from the investment tax credit, maybe more now that the production tax credit is available. The same goes for energy storage, new tax credits for hydrogen, expanded support for carbon capture and storage, EV tax credits, on and on and on and on, right? Virtually everything you would want to put in a portfolio to decarbonize the country is now on sale with Uncle Sam picking up a big chunk of the tab. That fundamentally shifts the economic calculus for the millions of different decisions that households and businesses and utility companies and many others have to make about how they're going to source their energy and their energy services. Now, with Uncle Sam's thumb on the green side of that scale, we can see those decisions start to tip in the direction that we need to see to be on the path to net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Now, of course, in addition to shifting these decisions, we're also seeing an enormous amount of investment in energy infrastructure like solar and wind projects and energy storage, but also in the uh, retail sector, right, in our purchases of electric vehicles, of heat pumps, of energy storage and solar in our homes, and in the manufacturing uh, renaissance that has been started by this law uh, to support domestic manufacturing here in the United States, to build out the supply chains, to build components and equipment um, for the solar uh, storage, wind, uh, and battery industries. The impact is already significant. The Clean Investment Monitor, which has been put together by the Rhodium Group and MIT, has been tracking on a quarterly basis, basically in real time, the scale of investment across the U.S. clean energy economy. And what we've seen is that over the last 12 months, ending in the, the final quarter of um, uh, the third quarter of 2023, so not even including the fourth quarter, which certainly grew, we saw $225 billion invested across America's clean economy. Just $64 billion in Q3 alone, that's a 42% year-on-year growth rate. 
right? 42%. That is the kind of growth rate that should get anyone excited about being in a sector, right? That is explosive. And it's only going to continue when we think about the fact that most of the projects being built now that are going in the ground today had to have actually gotten started and probably reached their final investment decisions before the Inflation Reduction Act even passed, let alone the full year that we've basically spent over the last year finalizing tax credit guidances and rules, standing up grant programs, and getting the money to actually start to flow out the door. So really, looking ahead at 2024, and even more so 25 and 26, we're finally going to see the full impact of the federal support that's now on the table. And so the years ahead are going to be even more exciting, I think, than we've seen uh, the growth rates over the past 12 months. Now, all of this accelerates our progress on the path to net zero greenhouse gas emissions. That's the critical point where human-caused greenhouse gas emissions are exactly equaled out by human-caused removals of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, right, through our management of forests and agricultural lands, then through direct carbon removal from the atmosphere uh, through through various uh, technological means. When we reach that point, we'll finally have stopped digging ourselves a deeper hole when it comes to contributing to the damages uh, of, of, cli of global climate change. Climate change is a function of the cumulative greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere, and so that certainly uh, reaching net zero doesn't solve the problem nor reverse the damages. But it does stop digging ourselves a deeper hole, and the first thing you have to do when you find yourself in a hole is stop digging and then figure out how to climb your way out, right? So reaching net zero as fast as possible is the critical challenge that we face. And these industries that are assembled here today for this conference are a critical component of that challenge. So we have been making progress in recent years. Actually, over the last decade, we've seen greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. fall by about a billion metric tons. Our peak emissions were reached between 2005 and 2007, and they've come down through 2001 to about 5.6 billion tons. So we're on, um, we're, you know, we're on the right direction, but we need to accelerate this rate of progress. I've run, been running a project called the Repeat Project, which you can check out at repeatproject.org, which has been rapidly evaluating the impact of proposed and now enacted federal policies, including legislative initiatives and more and, and underway right now analysis of proposed EPA and DOE regulations like appliance standards and tailpipe standards and things like that. And so we get a real-time look at how um, uh, at changes in the trajectory towards net zero. And what we found is that uh, our trajectory before. Uh, the measures passed by the last Congress. So if we froze the policy environment at the beginning of January 2021, we expected that trend of emissions reductions to roughly continue, at least through around 2035, with emissions falling on average by 2% per year. That's about the pace that we've seen uh, over the last decade. Now, that doesn't get us, of course, anywhere close to that net zero greenhouse gas goal by 2050, nor the objective that the president has set of cutting emissions to half of our peak levels by 2030, which is really right around the corner. Hey, if you're looking for a way to maximize the ROI for your next utility project, I would like to point you to SunGrow's new SG4400 modular inverter. This new innovative solution will reduce capital and operating expenses because it arrives already on a skid with a step-up transformer. It's built using four 1100 kW modules so that if one of them fails, well, the other three keep powering right on through as the DC and AC protection are completely separate between the modules. You can learn more about this fantastic new product and more at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow.
Now, fortunately, passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure law basically doubles the expected pace of decarbonization, putting us on a track to cut emissions on average by about 4% per year between now uh, and 2035 and to get us to about 50% below our peak levels by 2035 and in the neighborhood of 40% below by 2030. Now, even that pace, which is double our historic average, falls short of the pace that we need to hit to reach that, uh, that net zero pathway. If we want to hit uh, 50% below by 2030 um, and to reach net zero by 2050, we have to be decarbonizing the economy at about 6% per year. So triple the rate before passage of these laws. So we've done about half of the work that we needed to do with these critical two pieces of legislation. Another way to think about it is that we're effectively still running about five years behind schedule to reach that 50% target, hitting it around 2035 instead of 2030. So acceleration, but more is needed to, to continue down this path uh, and get on track for net zero. And of course, these can't be the last climate laws that we pass or the clean energy incentive laws that we pass at the federal level because many of the incentives start to expire in the mid-2030s. And so as you can see, the trajectory effectively tapers off for emissions reductions once those tax credits end. And so we need to, we basically bought ourselves a decade of historic progress, but we need to continue to both uh, accelerate uh, the deployment of these technologies and the policy support and environment behind them. Now, if we take a step back and size up the overall challenge of reaching net zero greenhouse gas emissions, I'd like to break it down in this way. This is a graph showing all final energy consumption. So these are all the energy carriers and fuels that we use to provide services like heating our homes, powering industrial processes, or transporting ourselves or our freight around the country. This is a 2050 business as usual or frozen policy scenario where we're not trying to decarbonize the economy. It looks a lot like today's final energy mix. What we can see is that about a third of all of these final energy carriers are carbon-free energy sources or energy carriers. That's mostly electricity, but also steam and a tiny bit of hydrogen. These are energy carriers that themselves don't contain any carbon. And so if we can produce them in a carbon-free way, they don't emit any CO2 when we consume these carriers. And we have a sort of soup to nuts, full pathway of decarbonized energy production, transportation, storage, and use. Now, the bigger challenge, of course, and there are many different ways, I should say, to produce carbon-free electricity and, and steam, of course, um, solar and wind, uh, nuclear power, uh, geothermal energy, and other options. The bigger challenge is that the two other two-thirds of our final energy consumption is in the form of liquid and gaseous hydrocarbons, aka fuels, right? This is natural gas, diesel, gasoline, jet fuel, and feedstocks used in petrochemical processes to make plastics and other things. And this is a huge amount of energy consumption. There are options to decarbonize these sectors, like carbon capture and storage, which can reduce emissions from large power source, uh, point source emitters like power plants or refineries, where we can capture the CO2 and prevent it from reaching the atmosphere and store it safely underground. We can use some carbon neutral substitutes, drop in fuels like biofuels or alternatives like hydrogen or, or synthetic electrofuels that we could make to provide alternatives to these uh, liquid fuels. But these are much more expensive and challenging to produce. And many of them, like biofuels and electrofuels, rely on a very limited amount of carbon neutral sources of CO2 that we can use to make these hydrocarbons. So there's simply a maximum supply of sustainably harvestable biomass that we can put to use in a carbon neutral economy. And finally, we could continue to use fossil fuels, particularly in very high-value applications like, say, intercontinental jet travel or uh, plastic production or things like that, 
if we then offset those emissions through negative emissions technologies that are removing an equivalent amount of CO2 from the atmosphere. But these are also quite expensive and very nascent today. So whether it's biomass with carbon capture or uh, direct air capture technologies that use chemical absorbance to take CO2 out of the atmosphere, they're very costly and at very minimal scale today. And so it's, un it's a, a big open question mark whether we're going to be able to lean heavily on these technologies, and if so, at what scale of eventual deployment. If you add up all four of these solutions, the unfortunate reality is that we simply cannot continue with a business-as-usual structure of energy consumption in the economy, where two-thirds of our consumption is in the form of liquid and gaseous fuels. These technologies just don't add up, and they cost way more than alternatives that involve expanding the share of zero-carbon energy carriers, particularly electricity. So how do we get this done? by expanding dramatically the role of electricity and other electrically derived carbon neutral carriers like steam and hydrogen to supply more like 75% of our final energy consumption in an optimized net zero emissions economy. Here we can see also that the total primary or final consumption falls significantly. That's because it also happens that uh, Electric vehicle engines or heat pumps are far more efficient at converting these final energy carriers, electricity, into the things we care about, like heat and mobility, than internal combustion engines or boilers. So a heat pump it just moves energy around using a small amount of electricity to move two or three times more heat uh, in or out of your home or your, or your buildings. And uh, so it's more than 200%, 300% more efficient than uh, even an efficient boiler. And the same is true for an internal combustion engine, which wastes most of the energy in your gas tank before it reaches the wheels of your car. So uh, electric vehicles are far more efficient at using the fuel and the battery and turning them into uh, mobility. So not only do we expand the source uh, of carbon-free carriers, but we also reduce the total amount of fuel that we need to produce. So we get a sort of double win here from, from this, this strategy. That knocks down the remaining uses of, of, of gaseous and liquid hydrocarbons to a scale that we can address with sustainably harvested biomass with, um, uh, and with other uh, carbon neutral substitutes, as well as direct air capture or carbon capture and storage at a much smaller scale than we would otherwise have to rely on. So this is the kind of formula that we, that we need to reach net zero. This has been repeated by dozens of studies, all of which rely on greatly expanding the role of electricity to reach our net zero economy. What that means is that the electricity sector itself has to be ready for growth mode. Even though total final energy consumption is going to fall under this strategy, the electricity sector is going to do the exact opposite. And we have not seen this kind of growth in decades. The last time we saw the electricity sector steadily expand in terms of demand growth across the United States was through the period of the 1980s, 90s, and early 2000s, when demand for electricity in the U.S. grew at a little over 2% per year, 2.4% on average, so steady growth. Even that was slower than the pre-1970s era of rapid expansion um, as we built out our industrialized economy from the 1930s through the 1970s. But at least it was a steady expansion. The, the, the industry was used to adding new capacity, building new infrastructure, and meeting demand growth on a regular basis. In the mid-2000s, something fundamentally shifted in our economy, right? Several things. This is, of course, the point where, the, where China enters the WTO and we start relying much more heavily on global trade for many of our manufactured products. So the gradual pace of, over, of offshoring and manufacturing accelerates in the 2000s. Most of the growth in our economy comes from energy light industries like financial services and retail that simply don't consume a lot of electricity or energy to produce economic growth. 
And at the same time, we have growing uh, focus on energy efficiency. With, that means that our any remaining growth in demand for energy services can be met by more efficient processes that keep the total demand for electricity roughly flat. Now, of course, there are regions in the country where this differs. Texas has seen you know, growth, for example. Parts of the country in the north may have seen uh, declines. But nationally, the electricity sector has basically been stagnant for nearly 20 years. So think about what that means. You have an entire industry of people who have worked for you know, basically their entire professional careers in an environment where we expect the electricity demand to be stagnant. That creates a sort of zero-sum mentality where any growth simply is competing for uh, and displacing existing capacity, where we don't need to think a whole lot about building new transmission or meeting new peak demands. This is going to fundamentally change and is now currently changing um, as all of the RTOs around the country grapple with, uh, with a dramatic acceleration in demand growth driven by a variety of trends. In our modeling, the growth of electrification, of uh, heating, uh, uh, through heat pumps, of hydrogen production as incentivized uh, by the Inflation Reduction Act for electrolysis, and electric vehicle adoption, of course, with millions of EVs on the roads in California, New Jersey, and around the country, is going to drive a new period of sustained demand growth for electricity. We're going to see about 2% per year growth again, a similar pace than we saw in the 1980s through the 2000s. And that comes on top of things like AI and data center loads that are already growing, plus the manufacturing renaissance that we're seeing across the country, which also needs considerable amounts of new electricity. So we have to get back in a growth mentality as an industry, and that is going to make a fundamental mental shift. And that's just the beginning. If we're serious about getting on the path to net zero, the period from 1935 uh, to from 2035 to 2050 could see electricity demand nearly double in the United States, particularly the production of hydrogen and industrial electrification, which is going to come later in this process, but is a critical component of any pathway to net zero. Also, because adoption of heat pumps and EVs follows an S-curve, uh, just like every other sort of uh, end-use adoption trend, whether it's uh, smartphones or uh, flat panel TVs, and stock of vehicles lags behind the adoption trends. And so even though we're seeing explosive growth in sales, with states like California and New Jersey targeting 100% EV sales by 2035, the stock of vehicles on the road is going to turn over slower. And so the 20, late 2030s is really the period where we see the vehicle stock transition um, over uh, overwhelmingly to electric, electric drive, driving up and accelerating the demand growth. So the growth we're seeing now is just the tip of the iceberg. We have to be prepared to roughly double or more the scale of electricity production in the United States. Now, that makes electricity and clean electricity provision the linchpin, the critical component in any pathway to reach our net zero goals. And in fact, it presents a double challenge for the electricity sector. It will be enough only to meet that demand uh, growth uh, as well. But if we only meet the demand growth with clean electricity, we won't be driving down emissions in this country. We'll simply be preventing them from growing. So the electricity sector faces a twin challenge. We have to cut emissions faster and deeper than any other sector while expanding the supply of electricity to power our economy and electrify our lives. This is our total electricity production in the U.S. today. The uh, red and gray on the top are gas and coal that provide about 60% of our electricity and have to be steadily displaced to be on a path to net zero. By 2030, to keep up with demand growth and to reach our 50% emissions reduction goal across the economy, we would have to add one and a half times all current carbon-free generation in the United States in the form of new clean generating capacity on the grid. 
So this is more than one and a half times all of the solar and wind built to date, plus all of the nuclear and hydro that were built out in previous decades. That's the challenge for the next few years ahead of us. But again, that's just the start. By 2035, to be on track for net zero, we should build the, uh, enough clean electricity generation to equal all, to exceed actually, all total electricity generation in the United States today. So we need to build the sum total of our whole generating grid in new clean capacity between now and 2035. That's the challenge ahead of us. And then we have to double it. Because again, demand is going to grow roughly by double between 2035 and 2050 on this pathway. So this is the scale of the challenge for this industry and the rest of your colleagues across the clean electricity sector. To, more than, to build more than double all current U.S. Generating, uh, generation in the, uh, today in the form of new carbon-free generation across the next roughly 30 years, less than 30 years now. This is an unprecedented challenge for our sector. Right? It requires an entirely different mindset and approach. To be, uh, and it also represents an enormous economic opportunity and a growth opportunity for everyone in this room. Now, the good news, of course, is that this transition is increasingly affordable, right? It's not like this is going to break the bank. In fact, wind and solar and battery costs have plummeted so significantly over the last decade that they're now just the cheapest sources of new electricity we can get. Not new clean electricity, just new electricity, period, right? And so this is what's propelling and providing headwinds uh, or tailwinds for this transition and making it something that is economically and politically palatable for the country to consider. So that's the good news. We've seen the cost of solar and, and batteries fall by roughly an order of magnitude since the last time Congress tried and failed to pass major climate policy in 2009. And we've seen the cost of onshore wind fall by about two-thirds. Now, we've seen a rough uptick in this over the last couple of years, um, but already the battery trends are on a downward trajectory, and I believe the raw component costs of solar are as well. And so we would expect these downward trajectories to resume uh, soon with further cost reductions ahead of us. The challenge then is not really an economic one. We have the declining cost of the technologies. We have the economic incentives provided by the Inflation Reduction Act. The challenge is how quickly can you all build? How quickly can we as an industry interconnect new capacity to the grid? How quickly can we plan and site and expand transmission to support all of that? These are the challenges that are going to determine whether we are on the pathway to net zero or not over the next decades. And indeed, it's time for this industry to smash new growth records every year, basically here in uh, and here from, from here on out uh, going forward. So this is a, a chart of historic power generating capacity additions across the U.S. from the 1950s on. You can see the big build out of coal and, and nuclear capacity in the 1970s. Again, that's the last time we saw very rapid demand growth uh, in the U.S., you see the big boom in gray in uh, gas turbine capacity in the 2000s. That's when we restructured electricity and gas markets, opened the door to competition, and saw a huge amount of investment by IPPs in gas generating capacity. Right? I think a peak of over 50 gigawatts, almost 60 gigawatts built in a single year. And then, of course, the growth of the solar in yellow and wind industries in blue uh, over more recent decades, which have now become the vast majority of all capacity additions in the United States. So here's where we've been at. This is the pace that we would need to be building at to be on track for that net zero trajectory. Th between now and 2030, we would need to see double the average pace of deployment uh, as we saw. The average pace would have to be double the peak pace of deployment that we've seen for solar uh, and wind historically. We reached about 15 gigawatts of uh, wind additions in 2020. Uh, and we built about 20 gigawatts of solar in 2021. And I think through the year end here, we're expecting more like 30, 35 gigawatts uh, through 2023. 
So we would need to be building about 40 gigawatts per year of solar on average and about 30 gigawatts per year of wind on average uh, to meet the pace that we're talking about here. And then we would need to accelerate to 3.5 times our peak rates through the 2030s to be on this path. Now, the good news is that the solar industry is pulling its weight, thanks to all of you and, and, and the projects that you're working on. The EIA is expecting the Energy Information Administration's short-term energy outlook expects that we will average about 44 gigawatts of capacity additions in the solar sector between now and 2025. So already we're actually hitting that, that average pace. And if it accelerates beyond that, we'll actually be ahead of schedule in the solar industry. So give yourselves a round of applause. That's pretty impressive. Now, the challenge is on the wind side of things, where we're actually expecting growth rates over the next uh, a couple of years to only be about half of the peak rate that we saw historically. And so maybe solar has to grow even faster to compensate for the declining pace of deployment in the wind industry, although it would be nice if everyone were firing on all cylinders and we were seeing the kind of historic growth rates in the wind sector as well. So this is the kind of challenge that we need to be on, you know, looking forward, smashing new records every year, accelerating the pace of deployment to reach these goals. Just to give you a visual of what that might look like, this is a map of all utility scale resources in the US today, plus our modeled 2022 capacity additions in dark colors. So the light blue are all the wind farms across the country. You probably can't see in light yellow unless you're closer, the uh, utility scale solar projects across the US. But hopefully this becomes a little bit more visible. This is a representation of the scale of build-out that we would need to see to be consistent with reaching those goals in 2035. So we basically double the amount of wind capacity across the U.S. and build an enormous amount of solar effectively spanning every state in the country, right? As well as getting started with an offshore wind industry that is certainly nascent today um, and is, reaching, has, is seeing its own tailwind. So this is the scale of build-out that's required. And again, where the rubber meets the road in terms of whether we can actually be on this track. In a world where lots of solar technology providers seem to blend together and have little differentiation, it truly is necessary that you are able to dig deeper, get more resources and tools, and have more breadth of opportunity to learn and share with your core partners. Trina Solar is leaning in to the many requests for the Trina Hub, the new global partner portal dedicated to giving partner training courses and certifications, as well as a full asset library of pre-built and co-branded marketing resources for channel support. I'd like to encourage you to try Trina Hub for yourself. See how it helps grow your solar business and develop or enhance your digital marketing ecosystem. Learn more and sign up today at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. Now, to do all that, to connect wind and solar at a historic pace, as well as to meet this expanding demand for electricity, we're going to need a bigger grid, right? There's no way around it. Just the demand growth alone, let alone the new source of electricity we want to tap into, would require us to steadily expand the transmission system. In addition, our current grid is not built out to tap into the most windy and su sunny places in the country, right? It's built out to tap into historic coal, uh, coal mouth, uh, uh, mine mouth coal plants or hydropower dams or to link certain uh, utility service territories that have, you know, historic uh, trade across them. So we need to not only grow the grid to meet peak demand, we also need to expand it to the right places in the country to tap into the best American resources we can. And that's where the wind and solar are. 
So our estimates are that between now and 2035, we would need to add about 75,000 miles of new high voltage transmission capacity to the U.S. grid. That's enough to run from uh, from New York to Los Angeles, or we should say San Diego to, uh, and back 15 times to give you a sense of that scale. So New York to San Diego 15 times. That's the flight I just took on the way here uh, and we'll take on the way back. So that's um, quite a, a significant lift as well. But it's also not impossible nor really un unprecedented. In fact, from if we look at the pace of expansion, that entails expanding grid capacity in the U.S. by about 2% per year between now and 2035. And from 1978 to 1999, that's about the pace that the U.S. expanded the grid. So the last time demand for electricity was steadily growing, we were growing our transmission system at about the pace required to be on track for net zero greenhouse gas emissions. It's simply true that we haven't done this for more than a decade. So from the 2004 to 2016, the average rate of grid expansion in the U.S. was only about half of the pace that we need, only about 1.2% per year. So the fact that actually we were expanding the grid even while demand for electricity was stagnant is, I think, an encouraging sign. With demand growing, with the need to tap into new wind and solar resources, we simply have to double the pace that we've seen historically and get back onto the track that we were seeing in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s of growing at about 2% per year. But the price of failure is high. If we can't expand grid capacity faster than the 1% per year that we've seen over recent decades, we will lose about half of all of the emissions reductions that could otherwise be delivered by the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act. That's the results from our transmission-constrained modeling work at the Repeat Project, where we limit the growth of, ex of transmission expansion. So if we can't shift into high gear, what we'll see is demand for electricity growing with an inability to expand supply at the pace required to, again, not only meet that demand, but also displace existing fossil fuels. And what that will mean is that our new EVs and data centers and heat pumps that are added to the grid will be prolonging the life of existing fossil power plants, coal plants and gas plants that could otherwise be retired or have their output substantially slashed because we're expanding new wind and solar to displace them and storage. So this is the challenge. Again, a huge amount of our emissions reductions potential hinges on our ability to expand the grid and interconnect um, rapid and uh, um, uh, record-setting uh, expansion of wind and solar and storage. If we take a step back, though, the good news is that the playbook to reach our decarbonization goals is now very clear. This was not the case when I started exploring pathways to deep decarbonization uh, around a decade ago. There was a lot of uncertainty about how technology costs would progress, how far we could rely on wind and solar and storage, what else we needed to complement them to get the job done. And I would say that, that that playbook is actually quite clear now because of the progression of technology costs, because of the clarity in the policy environment, and because of um, the real-world progress towards these goals that we've seen. So here's the playbook. First, as it's been very clear, we need to build wind and solar at a record pace. Right? This is how we're going to provide the bulk of our electricity demand and cut into the shares, uh, the 60% share of our ele existing electricity generation from coal and gas to drive down greenhouse gas emissions. So the bulk of the emissions reduction work over the next decade and beyond will be done by the growth of wind and solar power. At the same time, we need to expand the grid and build targeted storage uh, at the right locations to reduce the amount of grid capacity that we need to be ready for electrification and renewables. We are not going to be able to meet demand growth and interconnect new resources without building a bigger grid. Third, if we want to cut emissions, the first order of operations is to reduce our, our reliance on coal, to phase out 
largely all of the coal-fired capacity in the U.S. as rapidly as possible while maintaining electricity reliability. Coal plants simply are, emit a disproportionate amount of CO2 and dangerous air pollution for every megawatt hour of electricity that we have. So whatever we can do to reduce the amount of coal generation on the grid, that's the pathway to rapidly cut emissions and improve public health across the country. To do that while maintaining reliability, we're also going to need to maintain our existing nuclear power plants and on net, probably maintain all of the existing gas capacity in the US as well. It's simply too hard to shut down all of the coal while also retiring uh, emissions-free nuclear um, and, uh, uh, and retiring gas plants that could provide, uh, could step in and provide some of the reliability needs in the near term as we retire coal plants. Our nuclear plants provide about 20% or one-fifth of all electricity in the U.S., and they do so without carbon emissions while contributing to reliability. And there's simply no way we can scale replacements at the pace needed to both shut down coal and nuclear at the same time. And so I commend states like California and New Jersey that have t stepped in to help uh, maintain the reliability and operation of their existing nuclear fleets, even as they press forward towards 100% carbon-free grids with the growth of renewable energy and storage. Now, these steps alone, as we've shown in our modeling, I think this is consistent with California modeling from SDG&E and others, we can cut greenhouse gas emissions by about 80 to 90% across the U.S. by 2035 with just these four steps alone. And we can do that while maintaining reliability and delivering bulk electricity supply costs that are about the same as we pay for electricity today. So this is not going to break the bank, nor should it break the grid if we do so in a smart way. So these are the four steps that we can carry us forward over the next decade to dramatically slash greenhouse gas emissions and get us on track. Now, what this means is that solar, wind, and batteries are going to be stars on our low-carbon team. But just like in a basketball team, these are our uh, number one Ivy League uh, women's uh, basketball team at Princeton uh, right now for the fourth year in a row, just like a star team, a winning team, doesn't just rely on a star player, right, an excellent point guard alone to try to carry them to victory, you need all the right players playing all the right positions on the court to truly form a winning team. Solar, wind, and batteries are key parts of this team, but unfortunately, they're not enough to get the job done on their own. An 80 to 90% reduction in emissions, as, in emissions intensity as demand doubles is simply not going to get us to where we need to go. Even that will leave us with a substantial amount of current emissions in 2050. So to go all the way, we need to, to build out the full winning team. And I like to describe it as three different critical positions or components on the winning team. The first is where solar and wind fit in. These are as fuel-saving variable renewables, technologies that when they're there are basically producing free energy that is lower cost than any other fuel-consuming resource and therefore displaces gas and coal and all of the pollution and greenhouse gas emissions associated with that while saving the fuel costs that would otherwise be burnt. So mostly, these technologies deliver value through energy substitution. Some capacity value at the beginning, but these trend towards zero as we deploy more and more variable renewables. So most of their value comes from continuing to displace costlier fuel-consuming resources. Now, we can also complement these technologies with what I call fast burst or balancing technologies. These are the sprinters on our team that can provide short bursts of flexibility uh, and, and, and reliability, but not sustain it over long periods of time. That's where demand flexibility and demand response or curtailment and battery storage fit in today, providing several hours worth of flexibility on an intra-daily schedule. Um, what we need to complement these technologies, which are weather dependent or time delimited, are firm low carbon technologies, technologies that are available whenever you need them for as long as you need them. 
That makes them the critical missing component to complement our weather-dependent variable fuel-saving resources or our energy or time-constrained resources like short-duration batteries or demand flexibility. Now, on the edge here, we have technologies like large reservoir hydro in certain parts of the country or the world and long-duration energy storage that, with the right economics, can play this role as well. In addition, we have technologies like advanced geothermal and advanced nuclear, gas or coal equipped with carbon capture, biomass power plants, or net zero carbon gas plants. That could be burning hydrogen or synthetic methane um, or biogas or some blend thereof uh, to produce emissions-free or, or emissions-neutral uh, power. These are the technologies that we need to be pushing forward into the market to com complement the rest of the team. So with just two more steps, and that's uh, we can reach all the way to 100% carbon-free grid while maintaining reliability and affordability. And so in addition to deploying solar and wind and expanding our grid, we also need to be demonstrating a full range of clean firm technologies and long-duration storage technologies at commercial scale as soon as possible in the mid to late 2020s so that they're then ready for prime time to scale up, drive down costs, and reach maturity uh, so that they can contribute to our decarbonization goals and get us to a 100% carbon-free grid by 2045. This is the remaining challenge ahead of us. And the good news is that the Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act also set the stage for this. The demonstration funding is provided for basically all of these clean firm options in the billions of dollars scale by the Infrastructure Law. The loan program office is providing risk-tolerant loan credits uh, for all of these technologies as well. The deployment subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act are now technology neutral. So for all carbon-free electricity technologies and storage technologies, they're available for the long term through the 2030s with direct pay and transferability that make it easier to monetize these credits, particularly important for emerging technologies that tax equity doesn't typically want to do business with. And the private sector is responding. We're seeing first-of-a-kind demonstration projects being commercialized now for basically the full range of technologies, whether that's the alum cycle built by NetPower, the 100% uh, hydrogen turbine plants that are being demonstrated by basically all of the OEMs right now, small modular nuclear reactors, which recently saw some setbacks with NuScale but have other technologies moving forward, Advanced geothermal and enhanced closed loop, um, uh, enhanced and closed loop geothermal technologies, again with first commercial projects online this year for these technologies, and low cost long duration energy storage technologies, many of which are represented here at this conference. So this is not science fiction. These are projects going in the ground right now being built across the country and the world to complete the team. So that's it. This is the decarbonization playbook. We know what we need to do. Much of it relies on you and this industry to get that job done. And so I thank you for coming here today. I thank you for the opportunity to chat with you. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Well, thank you for listening to the full episode here on the podcast. I want to encourage you that if you didn't get a chance to watch this episode on YouTube, we did publish the video that we recorded. We have an exclusive on this interview at InterSolar. You won't see it anywhere else, I can promise you, because no one else recorded it. <laughs> so if you want to see what Jesse was talking about and see the slides that he referenced, go over to YouTube and type in Suncast Media. We're easy to find and become one of our subscribers there, if you will. We have spent a lot of time leaning into video this year. So if, if that's your jam, please go check that out. And if you, like me, are more partial to audio, thank you for being here. Please make sure that you subscribe and rate the show so that others can find it just like you. Smart folks on the front lines of the clean energy transition need to get the information that helps them separate fact from fiction and learn who their peers are that are you know, pushing alongside them. 
that is you and I and all the folks that you'll hear here on Suncast. Thanks to our sponsors for helping make this show possible. They show up each and every week in a way that you don't have to, which is monetary. Thank you for investing your time. And I'd like you to give a nod to them. If you'd go over to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor, you can learn more about the ways that they are helping bring the clean energy transition to fruition and how their tools and products can help you as well. I want to remind you that you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.